If you would take your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, last week we gave a little bit of a help, not saying you don't know where Esther is in the Bible, but I need help every once in a while with books like this. Uh, so you go to Psalms, kind of right in the middle, and then to the left, Job, one more book, you'll find Esther. Uh, and so uh, on my Bible, it's page 606. So. 411 in the Pew Bible. 411 in the Pew Bible. Thank you, Dr. Mackey. This morning we'll not make it quite through. I don't think we'll make it quite through the chapter. I think we're going to end at verse 18. I'll be surprised if we make it through verse 23. If you would stand with me as we uh, read God's word this morning in honor of the reading of Holy Scripture, we'll begin reading in Esther chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this, After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hege, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let the cos- their cosmetics be given them. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hege, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hege who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman uh, went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz. There you go. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hege, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. You may be seated. Well, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We desperately need to pray and ask the Lord's help in looking at this chapter of Holy Scripture. Our Father, we ask that you would bless their time in the Word this morning. Would you open our eyes to be able to see your faithful providence at work in the midst of gross immorality? 
there are a lot of very disturbing things in this chapter. That the authors of Scripture, by your working of your Holy Spirit, have made uh, in a tactful way for us, and yet we know what's being referred to. And it's horrific. And yet this morning, you, by your Holy Spirit, have it as the text that we will look at to be able to desire to know more of you and your ways that we might obey, submit to your word, and follow you as our king. And God, we pray this for your glory and for our greatest joy to be found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we return to the story of Esther and find at the beginning of chapter 2 that King Ahasuerus, a.k.a. Xerxes, like we mentioned last week, is thinking about his wife. It's normally a good thing for a husband to be thinking about his wife, but this wife, Vashti, he has banished from his presence. He actually sent a note to every province in his kingdom, over 127, that she is banished from his presence and that all women must honor their husbands. The text says that he, his anger has abated, he's calmed down now, and he's thinking of his wife. The way the text actually says that he remembers Vashti. He remembers her. He remembers what she's done. She refused to come into his presence. He also remembers the decree that he made against her, that she can never come into his presence again. It does not mean by saying he remembered Vashti, his wife, that he forgot about her. Uh, that he all of a sudden remembers her. Uh, like you maybe forget about your parking spot in the grocery store parking lot, and then all of a sudden remember it. Oh, it's more of a covenantal remembering. This is used of God often in referring to God remembering his covenant people. Genesis 8.1 is one example where it says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, we would recognize that it's not that God forgot Noah and all the people and animals in the ark just floating out there, but that God thinks about his people, recalls the promises that he has made. It's an anthropomorphism. It's a, a way of putting our human language to God, to be able to say of him in a way that he remembers his people. He's recalling the covenant promises that he has made to them that he will faithfully fulfill. There's a covenantal language here. As husband and wife, you would expect that there's a remembering in a covenant form of a man to his wife. But he might have been thinking, as he's thinking of his wife, the pictures that are in her mind, in his mind, that maybe he was a little too harsh on her. Maybe he's recalling how much he really loved and cared for her, how her face looked when she laughed. Maybe he's remembering their long walks through the garden. But if you notice, his fond remembering of Vashti is cut short once again. As the famous advisors to King Xerxes come up with morally awful advice. These guys, it was their advice given to him that he should banish his wife, send a decree to the entire provinces of Xerxes' kingdom. And now it's their advice once again that they will give to the king. And here we find that instead of a king, one who's ruler over an extensive kingdom, making his own decisions and standing by them, that we have a king who listens to the advice of others. Even if it's not wise or good, a king who is moved by others in his kingdom. A king who instead of admitting maybe he went too far with how he treated his wife, continues to follow the advice of others. He's made others to be king in his ears. And as you read this text, you want to shout to Xerxes, stand up, man, and lead your kingdom. Instead of taking the reins and making a hard decision, Xerxes instead lets somebody else do it. He abdicates his leadership to poor leaders, to someone else especially in areas of close contact, of these close relationships like husband and a wife. Brothers and sisters, good leaders make hard decisions. Good will leaders are willing to admit that they're wrong. 
Good and godly leaders care deeply for their people. As we walk through this story, we'll see a few uh, ways as we look at the King Xerxes, and as the text then moves scene to scene from Xerxes to Mordecai and Esther, back to Xerxes and back to Mordecai and Esther, seeing in both of them, one, a pagan king, and the other, people who are supposed to be God's people, acting exactly the same. We find in both of them uh, morals that are deplorable, and none of them following after in any way what God would want them to do. Then first, as we look at verses 1 through 4, we see a king, the king gives up his leadership to pursue his pleasures. This king gives up his leadership to pursue his pleasures. When we walk through historical narratives, or even sometimes in the New Testament narrative stories, We just walk through the narrative. As the scriptures have given them to us in story form, we walk through them and make application as we can, and that's what we'll do again this morning. Here, as we look at the first four verses, the king is giving up his leadership to pursue his pleasures. The advice that the king has given is to have all the unmarried, beautiful women in his kingdom, from all the provinces, to be brought to the king's presence so that he might choose from among them a wife that pleases him. It's not like Cinderella in that the king just wants to dance with them at a ball, however. And that's made clear later on in the story. Here the king desires to pursue his pleasures, and the advisors are moving this king wherever they please by keeping him focused on his pleasures and on fulfilling his pleasures in the bedroom, looking for a wife, focusing, as we'll see, for the next several years on determining who is the most beautiful woman, who pleases him the most, so that the aspects of reigning in his kingdom for the next several years maybe are given over to others. Maybe they're given over to the very same advisors who are advising him to do this could be ulterior motives, who knows? But what we do know is that we see a king abdicating his leadership that he might fulfill his pleasures. The advice is not good at all for the king or his kingdom or these women. Notice the characteristics that the king is looking for in the women is not intellect or personality, but the sole thing that they're looking for is looks. There's no wisdom at all in the decision that is being made. This is of the closest of relationships, one who will co-rule with the king as queen, and they're only looking for one who has good looks. It seems as though that's the same qualifications that were given to Vashti. He wanted to bring her in and parade her in front of these other people at a festival or a feast, and she said no. The decision on the part of the king is going to cause division, will certainly cause division all over his kingdom, won't it? You can only imagine, as this news is going out by governors to all of these provinces, just imagine, a governor comes to a province and begins to pull young women from their homes and their families, to pull young women who they deem, that governor deems, as beautiful and as one who must come and be a part of the king's harem. This will rip apart families. It will take girls away from their homeland. It will take girls away from a boy that they love, a boy that they want to marry. Maybe they're on the verge of their wedding day and the girl's ripped away and taken to be one possibility out of thousands for the king. Takes a girl away from the possibility of having children as well. What a horrible example this king is setting for the rest of the men and women in his kingdom. They see a king choosing a wife based solely on her looks. They see a king choosing every woman he pleases within the kingdom at will, at not random, but choosing just based upon looks. Even in another way, imagine how devastating it is for a girl in that province who's not chosen, and another is, a sister who's chosen and another sister who's not, to be a girl in a province and who's left. Imagine how demoralizing that is. How horrible that a king, one who should lead his people well. You look at the biblical qualifications of what a king is supposed to do in leading his people. We recognize this is a pagan king who doesn't know God, and God's ways have not been made known to him. 
And yet you can just see how devastating this would be. Just imagining what this would look like if this happened in our region, our state. This is what it looks like. For someone to give up the reins of leadership and to give themselves fully to the pull of pleasure. Someone who is consumed with fulfilling their desires cannot lead well. The pursuit of pleasure cannot be contained. It will grow. It will be all-consuming and distracting. Brothers and sisters, you cannot lead your family, ministry, children well if you solely pursue what pleases you and makes you happy. The pursuit of pleasure will end up ruining not only you and your heart, your life, and your families. You will find yourself compromising morally, biblically, and relationally to get what you want. This, this can come in the form of listening to others like the king does. Listening to others around you, telling you what you deserve or what you need instead of listening to God and his word. Do we place what we think, what we want, what we think we need over what God's word says we do need or we shouldn't have or we can't have or what we should do? Someone who is driven by riches and the pleasure of having lots of things, may find that the only way they can get it is to lie at work, to cheat to get ahead. And yet they know that God says in his word that deceit is sin and it's wrong. Will they submit to the authority of God's word and to God? Or will they make themselves the authority over God and his word? The reality is when we come to situations like this of tension, We are either sitting under God's word or we are lording ourselves over God's word. There is no neutral ground. We are either the authority or God's word is the authority. And God and his word are the authority. When we look at a king like this, like we did last week, we have to walk away thankful that God is not a king who follows poor advice that harms people, that harms people needlessly, and which will be horrible for his kingdom. God always does what is right, and God's ways are always perfect. God's word and the commands and uh, stipulations that it gives to its people, the laws that it has, will always lead you in what is good and what is right. It will never lead you just merely to say, you can have no fun, and I never want you to be happy. That's the furthest thing from God's desires. But God knows that you will be genuinely and truly happy only when you act according to his ways and in sync with his laws and being a person of integrity, one who is one of God's people doing what God desires, though never perfectly, yet desiring to do and to follow his leading in our lives. God has no advisors. God has no counselors who direct him. God is not driven by pleasure, but by fulfilling his purposes that he has ordained from eternity past. God's will will always be done. It will always be right, and it will not be swayed by evil kings. We have a king here who pursues pleasure over leading his people well. As we move into verse 5 in the section, verses 5 through 11, we find that disobedience and compromise land Mordecai and Esther in a dangerous situation. Disobedience and compromise bring Mordecai and Esther, the two Jews, the people of God in this story, lands them in a dangerous situation. You look at verse 5 where this section begins in the next several verses. The text makes a disjunctive here where it moves to clearly say, now this is something different. You see it even a little bit in the way the English does it. Verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa. Instead of saying, and, and the story continues like we would expect a story, the word now all of a sudden moves in a different direction. You have this piece where this is happening in the kingdom. Now I want to tell you about something different. And notice what you have. You have a Jew in Susa, the citadel, the capital area. We, we've seen this area before where the palace is, but you have a person who is of God's people. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai is a close relative, as we'll see. He's 
of the family of Kish. He's a Benjamite. And from that, we know he's a close relative to what will be King Saul. Mordecai here, as a Jew, is living in Persia, a foreign nation. He's not living in the promised land. But because of disobedience of God's people, as they failed to obey God and His Word, when Israel was coming to take over the promised land, God had laws for His people to maintain. He had the Ten Commandments, and He also had laws in how they were to destroy the inhabitants of the land fully and finally. Not only destroy them, people, but their gods as well. And while we think that sounds horribly harsh, that God would do that, the text over and over again in the Old Testament says, devote them to destruction. We have to remember, as we mentioned earlier, that God's ways are always right. He is the God of the universe, and He always does what is good. And yet God's people didn't trust Him, didn't believe Him, and didn't follow His will. So God's people are taken into captivity. Notice the language that is used there in verse 6. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, carried away with Nebuchadnezzar. So three different ways. It states that these Jews have been taken out of their land, carried away by their king, their king who disobeyed God's laws, The king was carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. And so all of them with the king are carried out of their land and into captivity. God's people, because of disobedience, have found themselves to be taken into captivity. And yet that's not the full and final story. Because God's people were allowed by another king to go back into their land, to go back to Jerusalem. And so you have captivity and return. The people can now go back and rebuild Jerusalem but not very many Jews did. In the total number of the people of Israel, not very many, not a high percentage came back. But instead, they found themselves comfortable, comfortable in their other areas of living, Babylon or Persia. Esther and Mordecai's families evidently did not go back to Jerusalem with others of God's people when they were allowed to, and yet instead chose to stay in comfortable Persia. Jerusalem, in comparison, was a rinky-dink town compared to the metropolis of Persia that provides you with everything that you need. It's not always a good thing in the Scriptures to live in the big city. It's not always uh, one sign of spiritual uh, growth when someone chooses to live in the city where all of these items of pleasure and all of these idols in their temples are found. It's usually the opposite. It begins to speak of moral decay, of spiritual decline. And that's exactly what we find with Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai being a close kin to Saul's line, and here is his cousin Esther. Esther is mentioned here in the text by both her Hebrew and her Persian name. Thus hinting at there's still a remnant of Jews here. There's still a Hebrew influence, and yet it's almost dying. We see the same thing in Daniel, where Daniel and his three friends are given both Babylonian names on top of their Hebrew names that they already had. And yet we see a huge contrast as we continue to walk through the story of Esther and compare it with Daniel and his friends in Babylon. The text makes it clear that Esther's parents have died, and she's being raised by her cousin Mordecai, the son of, her, uh, of his uncle Because of their living in Susa and because of her beauty, Esther is brought into the king's palace rather rapidly. And notice the language that is given. Throughout this chapter, we mentioned several times how Esther is found uh, to be favorable in the eyes of the eunuch here, Hige. She's also found to have favor in the eyes of the king, favor in eyes of all who knew her. There's providential favor that is given to Esther for some reason or another. Esther is given privilege in the king's harem. She's given certain foods. She's given a certain position that is the highest of the other women within the harem. Mordecai stays near the palace to hear how Esther is doing. It says that daily he's moving in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther is and what's happening to her. There seems to be from Mordecai a real genuine care for his cousin. 
But as we walk through this portion of verses 5 through 11, we cannot help but come away seeing the generational disobedience and compromise of God's people that lands Esther and Mordecai in quite the dangerous situation. She is in the palace of a foreign king. She's not telling her identity, either out of fear or out of the having to compromise food laws, Sabbath laws, worship, and moral purity. Out of a desire to move up in the ranks, we're not sure. But we are sure that Mordecai has commanded her not to tell that she is a Hebrew, not to give her nationality to discreetly or to deny her identity, her true identity. There is something about Esther, though, that allows her to find favor with the eunuch, to move into higher ranking, which, if you begin to think about it, is horrible even to mention, right? All of these women have been brought here simply because of their looks, simply because of a king who wants to fulfill his pleasure every night. And to think of a ranking system, to think that some of them find favor more than others, is deplorable. Mordecai might seem to care for Esther's safety, so he doesn't want her to share her nationality. But in reality, we have to look at the truth, and the truth is that he cares little for her relationship to God. There would be a stronger desire to do what is right, to make hard decisions. Good decisions will have ramifications. Mordecai might be pragmatic, that she should hide her true identity, that she might make the most of this opportunity. She might just win the contest and become queen. As the text says, that she has a, a lovely figure, a beautiful countenance or a beautiful face. She's lovely to look at. But she has to be to be brought into this position. And yet she's finding herself rising above the other women. It could be, and we'll see later, it could be that Mordecai is merely pragmatic, seeing his cousin as a ticket to get himself into the kingdom, for her to win and be queen. And yet we know that here in the king's palace to be winning would ultimately be losing. The reality is that Mordecai and Esther are compromising who they genuinely are. Long ago, their families had compromised and disobeyed God and his laws and had compromised who they genuinely were to find themselves in relationship with other gods and with other people that God had told them not to. And the truth is that today and every day, teenagers especially, are faced with decisions of what identity are you going to live by? Who am I? Who am I going to tell others that I am? What information am I going to give someone else about who I am and what matters to me? Teenagers are wrestling with, am I going to adopt the biblical standards on sexuality? Or am I going to adopt the message of the culture around me? Am I going to live for God no matter what it costs me? Or will I hide in embarrassment? Parents, you and I might compromise who we truly are out of fear of what others might think. We might be afraid of not being promoted in our job. You might think that you have to deny your true identity as a child of God to advance yourself or to make those friends that you are wanting to make. Are you a Christian who serves in a workplace or businessman or woman who happens to have some religious commitments on the weekend? Which do you see yourself as? Primarily a Christian working here or primarily a businessman who has a little bit of religion on the side? Are you going to adopt the values of corporate America in which people are treated like commodities and the only thing that matters is the bottom line? Or will you adopt the values of Jesus to see the inherent value in each person you encounter, whether it's your boss, a coworker, a client, or a subordinate? One commentator, Brian Gregory, says, throughout history, people of faith have always found themselves living in the same tension as Esther finds herself, struggling with whether to be faithful to their core identity among the people of God or whether to capitulate to the pressures of the cultural expectations and opportunities. 
intention of living consistently out of one's identity in Christ, whatever the cost, or doing whatever is desirable according to others, and that we've come to take on ourselves. Who is leading you? God and His Word, or your pleasure and the culture around you? Esther gives in, clearly, and there's no excuse for it. She clearly gives in to the culture around her, and so does Mordecai. And their compromise and their disobedience has led them into a very dangerous situation. It is not one that she likely will escape from. The reality for all of these girls who are taken into the king's harem is that they will not get out. They will not marry. They will not have another husband. Their husband is the king. Whether he chooses them to be queen or not, they will always live in his kingdom, in his palace. Either they'll live as a wife, as the queen, or they'll live as concubines. We'll see this later in the story. They get their one night with a king, and at the end of that night, it says the next morning, they go to another house with all the rest of the concubines. Now, some of the girls who come from very difficult backgrounds might have struck, feel like they struck the lottery. I have now a lush, lavish lifestyle. I don't care if I have a husband or not, but I get every, all of my needs taken care of. And for other girls who said, my dream was to have a family, to raise, uh, raise children, to have property and to do whatever it is. Maybe a young Jewish girl who desires to follow after Christ now finds herself forever. The rest of her days found locked in a king's palace with other concubines. Who is leading? Will we compromise? Or will we stay faithful with attention to find our core identity among the people of God? Well, the text again, as we mentioned it will, moves back to the king and his pursuit of pleasure. And we notice in verses 12 through 14 that the king's pursuit of pleasure does what pleasure always does. It harms those closest to him. Notice as we look in verse 12, the turn comes for each young woman to go into the king. After 12 months under the regulations for women, the text even goes into some of the details of the things that are happening to them for these months. Six months of doing this and six months of having this and these foods and in this way, given these cosmetics. And when it's their time, they can pick something to take in with them to try and please the king, put themselves above all the rest, whatever it is. Quite a bit of detail that's given. Quite a bit of research, no doubt, has gone into this process of what they would have expected as Persians to be beautiful. It could have been very different from what the girl was raised with. It could mean definitely marring her body in some way, a way that her people thought was not beautiful. She now has to give over to this beautifying process that the Persians wanted. We used to live in Eugene, Oregon. In Eugene, Oregon, you have the Oregon ducks, okay? That's everywhere. Uh, and the Oregon ducks don't do anything if they can't do it the best. You know, some of you are going to laugh because you're Husky or Cougar fans, but you have to understand the Oregon Ducks don't have a men's baseball team because right now they don't believe they can win the national championship. So they only invest in the sports that they believe that they can win in. But the Oregon Ducks go to such a crazy amount of research and study. They recently had built this football facility that was $65 million or more, and it was attached to their practice field. And they had pools that after practice, the football players would walk through, and one pool was at a certain temperature, and it was a certain height, so that when you walk through it, it cooled your body to a certain temperature. And you would walk through the pool, get out, and then step into another one that was a different temperature. And that pool at a different temperature would cool your body in a different way. And both together would enhance your ability to recover from practice and be ready even stronger for the next day. Uh, most of us would just, you know, put an ice pack on or get something else, you know, some sort of a product from the store that helps, that smells horrible, right? And that's supposed to help your aches and pains. And, or we would just not practice the next day. Some other athletes just jump into an ice bath. But they had done so much research, and it looked to the outsider like opulence of just, you have got to be kidding. We're doing this for college football players, and this much research and time exerted into this. Well, this is exactly what they're doing for the king to find one woman. All of this work, all of this time, all of this energy, 
And as we begin to see later, we'll give, be given a hint of how long this has gone on for. This is 12 months of beautifying. But I don't know if you picked up on later in the stories we were reading, it said, in the seventh year of the king's reign. Some of you might remember from last week, we were in the third year of the king's reign. So if he begins to move rather quickly when Vashti is deposed and starts looking for a wife, we're talking four years of looking for a wife. If they're in a beautification process for 12 months, which is all built on his pleasures and whatever he desires, then there's at least three years of women who are coming in and out of the king's bedroom. You begin to think of the numbers of women just in that type of math and go all of this opulence, all of this research, all of this work for one woman to go to the king one night and then for the rest of her days be spent in his palace, just waiting in case he calls her again. It is unbelievable. And the harm that is done to these women, the harm that is done to women in general, when men merely see women as a means of pleasure and as a means of fulfilling their desires, the woman is completely thrown away. The woman does not matter to the king unless she stands out among the rest of them. The woman is completely thrown away. She goes in for the one night, and verse, 15, verse 14 says, she would not go in again to the king unless he delighted in her, and she was summoned again. This is all about the king's pleasure. Over and over again, the word pleasure and delight are seen in this chapter. The king's pursuit of pleasure harms every one of these women. It harms those who are closest to him. It harms his kingdom. It harms his rule. It harms these women. If they are not selected by the king, they are destined for widowhood as a concubine. Let's move on to the next section. As we look at verses 15 through 18, Esther compromises. Again, we move back to Esther and Mordecai. Esther compromises favor with God for the favor of the king. Esther once again compromises favor with God for favor with the king. Sometimes before when we were maybe reading this story, maybe you and other readings thought, man, this is a great thing. She's pretty smart. She's, you know, hedging her bets and making friends with a eunuch, and she's finding the right thing to bring in for her night with the king. She's doing her best. Man, go get him, tiger. Isn't this horrible? I mean, this is what we begin to look at when you think of this story and the gross immorality that is again and again that is happening. But yet, by God's providence, and it can be given to nothing else, that Esther's finding favor with everyone. Uh, the, the eunuch, find, she finds favor with him right away. She finds favor with everybody that she meets. It says in verse 15, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. You have to imagine there's all of these women, all of this beautification process. It has to be quite the competitive nature quite a tense environment, you would think. All of them wondering who it is who will eventually be king. And yet all of them that she comes into contact with, she finds favor with. There is a mark upon her that is not upon anyone else. In the seventh year of his reign, it says in verse 16, the king calls her, summons her into his, uh, into his room, into his palace, the king, in verse 17, loves Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Just, just all of the immorality that goes into that one verse. Here's a queen instead of Vashti. So already there's adultery that's happening. There's her more than all the other women. She, more than every other one he's been with up to this point. And yet, it's not, it doesn't say, and the text never does say, he gets rid of all the other concubines. Okay, from now on, I'll be a man who is faithful, a one-woman man. The king loves her more than anyone else, gives her all of these words that are seen in the text that he delights in her alone, superlatives given, grace and favor all of a sudden we begin to get a hint that there is something very providential that is happening, more so than just a girl who happens to please a king. 
and tickles his fancy in some way. But is more than that. There is grace and favor that is seen. And how does the king respond? He responds by calling her the queen, giving her the crown, throwing a banquet. Once again, a banquet. The guy loves to throw these banquets. And if you noticed in the last verse, he granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. He is so enamored with her that he's even going to lower taxes for people. How much he loves this new wife, this one out of a thousand, that he would even go to the extent of lowering taxes. All of a sudden, notice the king is making decisions. And why is he making decisions? Because his pleasure is full. He's found what he desired. It's not because it's what's right or what's good, but it's merely because his cup is full and he has found one that he wants to have as his queen. When we begin to look at a story like this, we begin to be discouraged. We can be demoralized and wondering what is the point? Why put a chapter like this in God's word? And I think if we could give one sentence, it would be because God loves to write straight with crooked pencils. We've mentioned this statement before. But Scripture is not given as a chronicle of great moral examples. Scripture does not portray ethical heroes or spiritual giants. Instead, it is, Scripture is the unfolding story of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and God's redemptive grace in the midst of it. Over and over again, From the beginning to the end of Holy Scripture, you see these people who continue to fail in big ways. People who stand at the center of God's covenant with his people. Abraham lies about his wife twice, doubts God that God can provide a son for them. Moses is impatient and disobeys God in front of all of the nation. David commits adultery and murder, and those are just three. And yet God loves to write straight. In his providence of redemption, his story of redemption loves to write straight with crooked pencils. Why? So the glory goes to God. So we look at God and declare how great his providence and his glory is. So we look at a situation like this when all seems lost, and we walk away marveling at the faithful providence of God. In John 18, we have a story in the New Testament of someone who almost completely makes a wash of themselves. It's Peter. He's one of Jesus' own disciples. It's not somebody who used to know of God and his ways. It's Peter. He's walked with Jesus for several years now. Peter, who has seen Jesus work miracles over and over again, feeding 5,000, healing someone, bringing people back to life. It's Peter, who when Jesus, at the time when he needs him the most... It's Peter who creates and causes the most moral deprivation, the the worst moral sin you could imagine, if we can put them in categories of what is worse or less. But it's Peter who, when he's called as one who is a follower of Christ, compromises and three times denies Jesus denies he knows him, denies he has any relationship with Jesus at all. You might be sitting in your seat and think, I am a sinner. I do wrong, and I repent, and I I want to trust in Jesus, and and I'm working hard to trust in Christ. And yeah, man, some of these people in the Old Testament, they they really give up, don't they? They're really awful. And here we look at one whom the church, Jesus says, is built upon this rock, Peter. Because even though Peter denies Jesus three times in a horrific way, when Christ needs someone the most, everybody leaves him. And yet Jesus doesn't leave Peter. Just a couple chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is coming to Peter and giving him this pastoral encouragement. I want you to go feed my people. I want you to love my little lambs. I want you, the denier, the compromiser, the one who left me when I needed you the most, I want you. You are a crooked pencil, and I'm going to write a straight story with your life. And I'm going to use you and even your sin, your denying me, to write this incredible story of grace and redemption. 
We look back at this story. And Esther, as we have mentioned, is culpable for her failures. Her compromises cannot be excused, downplayed, or explained away. Yet in a larger context of the book, this young girl's moral compromises are used by God to deliver his people from potential extermination. How many times, like Esther, have we been willing to compromise because we were unwilling to suffer the consequences for doing what is right? How many times do we rationalize by telling ourselves that we don't really have a choice? We have to do this wrong. And we can find ways to justify it. I need this pleasure. I have to act in this way, deceiving my boss. I must fudge the lines here. Do you realize how much it'll cost if I don't? How many times have we chosen to conform to the cultural standard rather than to live out our core identity as someone who Christ has redeemed and made new? Some, like Esther, have compromised in the area of sexual morality. They've engaged in premarital or extramarital sex. Some, like Esther, have married or are considering marrying someone who's not a believer and does not share their faith. Some, like Esther, have preferred to chase opportunity no matter what the cost, sacrificing family integrity or friendships to get ahead. And yet, brothers and sisters, the glorious news of the gospel is that God is able to gather up our moral failures and use them for redemptive and glorious purposes in the end. And we can look no further than the cross that says so, where Christ takes on himself all of our sins, all of your moral failures, all of the times that you have compromised and disobeyed in small ways and big ways in your eyes. And he took them upon himself. And in ways to say very clear to us with arms outstretched that nothing and no one is unredeemable. God takes our failures and he can incorporate them into his larger redemptive purposes. That does not mean that there are not high prices to pay for what we've done. That does not mean, like Paul says in Romans, that we ought to just sin, that grace may abound. Hey, God's going to use this in his plan. Let's party. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that God's providence is strong enough and his grace is big enough to take the crooked pencils and write a straight redemptive story. There is hope for the sexually immoral. There is hope for the one who has compromised time and time again. There is hope for the lost and for the sinner. One last story in Luke 7. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says to us, when we come to him in faith, trusting in his shed blood on the cross, your sins are forgiven. Your sins, which are many, your sins, which continue, are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are so grateful that Esther chapter 2 is not the full and final story. That we have hope. And we have hope in a Redeemer who has come, who never compromised and gave in to sin. A Redeemer who is perfect, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who always does what is right and whose ways are always good. One who came and who took all of our sins on the cross. So no matter where we find ourselves with whatever sins it is that we have committed, even up to this morning, there stands one ready to forgive. One who says, I see your sins, which are many, and I love to write straight with crooked pencils. God, to you be all the glory for salvation that you have worked from eternity past before we were born, before any humanity existed, has brought into redemption, has brought into place redemption for sinners. So that sin is not the full and final story, but grace is. Grace wins in the end, and for that we are thankful. Father, we pray that for someone here who does not know of your grace, and yet who stands full of guilt and shame because of their sins, may they find grace and mercy at the cross. May they see Jesus who has come from heaven, born of a virgin, who has given his life for sinners, not those who could pay him back, but for those who only had ever done sin and wrong. And yet he willingly and joyfully went to the cross, despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, that being the full pleasure of his Father in the salvation of sinners. So Father, we pray that they would come to faith in you even this morning. And may you grant grace to us who are sinners, who will not perfectly live in any way with any hope of never sinning again, but we will sin. We will sin today and tomorrow and the days that follow. May we come in full faith and repentance, clinging to the cross again in the Christ who has given his life for our redemption. And for the gospel, we are thankful. And Father, we ask that you would continue to work in us, bringing us quickly to repent of the times we compromise and disobey and bringing us fully to rejoice in the grace that is extended to us in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.